0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org.
1: As children attending Sunday school, it's easy to become enthralled with stories of important holy people. People who, though they had otherwise ordinary jobs and problems, God seemingly handpicked to further his kingdom through their daily lives and families. While it's certainly good to notice how often God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary ends, it's also important to notice the facets of the everyday less often represented in biblical texts. In her book, Prostitutes, Virgins, and Mothers, Questioning Teaching About Biblical Women, Dr. Paula Trimble Familetti does just that, giving voice to Jesus's female family members and disciples in a unique way. And we're delighted she's here on Christian Humanist Profiles with us. Welcome, Paula.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself?
0: Um, I am a Christian from birth. I've heard that referred to as a cradle Christian. I grew up going to Sunday school and church and on Wednesdays to whatever was going on. Um, And I've always been fascinated by by Christianity and by other religions. And my mother, my Sunday school teachers used to tell my mother, she always asks the hard questions. And one of my questions was, where are the women? Because it seemed to me like all I was being taught about was men. And the women that I was taught about were either prostitutes or virgins or mothers. And I wondered, didn't they do anything else?
1: That's a really great question, Um, and and that is, I think, a a really interesting theme uh, that runs throughout the book, uh, the idea of voices and which voices we hear loudest, when we hear those voices, how we hear those voices, which voices are silenced. Um, And I I was thinking about the issue of voices reading the book, and in doing so, was really struck by an anecdote that you share um, really early in the acknowledgments section of the book. Um, you talk about doing graduate work and apologizing in a paper you're writing for not being able to read in the original language uh, and say that a professor of yours responded in the margins. Even if you could read Hebrew, you would need other interpretations to exist to assist in interpretation. We all need another's help. Uh, so I was wondering, um, Do you think that there's something inherent in feminist research, in feminist theology, that necessitates this kind of multivocality, this uh, idea that multiple voices should be in conversation?
0: I do. I think that if we only hear a male perspective, then we miss half or more of God's self-revelation. Because women experience creation and the divine in different ways, I think, than men experience those things. And if we're not listening to the way that women experience the divine, we miss half the divine.
1: That's really interesting, the, the notion that half the divine, uh, or I, I like that you said maybe even more than half, is present in the feminine and uh, that that leads me to a question I had about the overall structure of the book itself. Um, I think lots of times, lots of kind of new perspectives on biblical commentary kinds of books um, are framed around uh, connections to the life of Christ, and that that certainly makes sense. Um, you do a little bit of that in this book. The way the book is organized, Uh, the first chapter is on Sarah and then her descendants. Then we go to um, women in the line of Jesus, then kind of broader women of his ministry. Uh, So, can you talk a little bit about um, that framing, that progression, why you chose to set the chapters up that way?
0: Well, I wanted there to be a, a Christological center. And so I chose to use women that. In some respect, had a relationship with Christ, whether they were in his genealogy or his family, or in some way, in uh, some way, a result of his ministry, had a connection with him. I don't really like using the word ministry, but that's what popped to my head. Um, so that's the reason that I used the women that I did, because they had a connection in some way with Jesus.
1: So there's a a part of the chapter progression that I wanted to wait to mention. Um, As I just said, we start historically, and then we get kind of culturally larger. Um, Those progressions both make sense. But the final chapter um, is about Eve. So Mm -hmm. why end at the beginning?
0: Well, I say that I thought about not even using her. Um, using her story. When I was writing this, it was almost like these women were telling me their stories. And my clearest recollection of that is waking up at four o'clock in the morning with Leah saying to me, they say I wasn't loved. They say my husband only loved Rachel. But I have seven children. I know what was going on in my tent. And I lay there thinking, she's right. These stories that I have, the way they have been presented to me, isn't what I read there. So even though I had decided I wasn't going to write Eve's story, it was like she kept calling to me, wanting her story told. And so that's why it comes at the end, is because I just decided near the end of the writing process that I was going to include her.
1: Uh, I, I really love the idea of Eve being kind of a a specter hanging over or or behind the entire project because I think um, as Christian women, we're often kind of, I don't know that I should be using this phrase, but I will, kind of haunted by the notion of Eve and, and the idea that um, that too much knowledge or that sinfulness is uh, is inherently feminine? Um, is, is that an idea that you uh, maybe also could, could talk about in terms of dealing with Eve?
0: Well, I don't think it's just Christian women. I think that culturally, especially when we trace uh, some of our beliefs back to Greek culture, women has, have been viewed as the people that bring evil into the world and I'm thinking of Pandora's box right now Um, and I think one of the reasons I wanted to write this is because I've been so influenced by those negative representations of women I remember when I was four anyway I think I was four I was very little I hadn't started kindergarten yet and I went to a Sunday school class And the person teaching the Sunday school class said, is there anybody here who is not a sinner? So I raised my hand because my mom always told me I was a pretty good little girl. And that person came down on me like flies on sugar that I was a sinner and it was all because of Eve. And it really stuck with me since, you know, that was a long time ago. And I think it's something that is used to control women. If you are the reason for all the evil in the world, then you need to be quiet and sit down so that you don't bring some more evil into the world. Does that answer your question?
1: Absolutely. Um and I, I think you're right. I think that um part of what the Spectre of Eve is doing um historically is about silencing and about telling women sort of to, to shut up and sit down and mm-hmm. not act. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a, the, the primary hat that I wear professionally. I'm a college professor of literature. And um, when, when you were talking about Eve, I kept thinking of um, Chaucer's Wife of Bath's Tale and uh, – and, the wife of Beth's kind of worst husband, um, Jenkin and his his book of wicked wives that he forces mm. her to listen to every night, right? And, um, and and eventually she gets fed up and says, I, I don't think this is the way it was. And, and his response is that he, um, he throws the book and, and hits her with it. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that, that that tradition is present. Um, not just in, in the sacred literature, but but all throughout history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so something that you alluded to um, earlier in, in talking about um, waking up in the middle of the night and, and hearing Leia's voice is the thing that struck me as most fascinating and unique about the book itself is that this isn't just a book about the women of the Bible. Um, there are stacks and stacks of those, of course. Um, It's a book that allows those women to speak in their own voices by combining uh, first-person personal narrative with kind of third-person historical research. So can you please tell us a little bit about why you chose to use both of those modes together and why it was important to let these women speak in their own voices?
0: For a long time, I when I was when I was doing my education, I experienced frustration that all of these stories about women were told about them, and I wanted to know what they thought. And one morning, I was sitting out on the deck thinking about these women and how they didn't tell their stories and how important story is in narrative, and. And I just thought, I've got to let them speak. I've got to let them tell their own story. So I just sat down with the Bible on my little book stand and read the story and then thought about if, if that were my experience, what would I have to say about it? And then wrote the woman's story as if it were my own experience. Uh,
1: you talk in other places in the book about being uh, inspired particularly by the Midrash tradition. Um, Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what that tradition is and and why you feel it needed a kind of feminist revisioning?
0: Um, I took a class from a woman named Jo Milgram and she taught a class at Berkeley called Handmade Midrash in which we created art about biblical text. And one of the things she said that so stuck with me is, the rabbis believed that the words and the spaces between the words told the story. And to me, the women's voices and the women's stories are those spaces between the words. When I think of Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah, and, and the Bible saying that God killed her husband, Ur, er, because he was such a bad man, I think, what must life have been like for Tamar to have been married to somebody so, God, so bad that God killed him? And so the spaces between the, the words in the text are her experience, and I wanted to know about her experience.
1: As I was reading the book, um, I was definitely the most emotionally struck and and deepest affected by those passages um, in the woman's in the woman's voices, uh, because I've never really, I mean, i as a Christian feminist and as someone who. Um, whose job it is to, to mentor young college age women. Um, I'm always kind of trying to look at the Bible and particularly the women in the Bible in different ways. And I, this was a a very different experience for me. I hadn't really heard um, these stories in these ways, and there were parts of the book that profoundly emotionally moved me and made me cry and pause and and, and lots of of really strong emotional reactions. So I was wondering, um, for you, composing those sections, was there any particular character or story that um, affected you in a way that you didn't expect?
0: many of them. Um, When I wrote Sarah's story and I read Abraham crying and moaning, my son, my only son, and I realized, and I had been taught for years, that Isaac was Abraham's only son and he was Sarah's only son. And I thought about What it must have been like for her when she found out that Abraham was going to sacrifice her son. And Bathsheba, when I realized she was not a temptress, David was a rapist and a murderer. And my whole life, I had been taught that Bathsheba was a temptress that seduced the king and she was in her own home cleansing after her period she wasn't anything of the kind he was a voyeur as well as a rapist and a murderer um so oh um the the now I even feel weepy just talking about it but the woman that was Uh, bent over for 40 years I, I think that's the right number of years and Jesus straightened her up and spoke kindly to her or the woman with the flow of blood for 12 years who was healed when I put those stories into those women's voices and thought about the profound change that happened in their lives because of a moment's relationship with this kind, generous man, I really felt touched by their stories.
1: Some of the ones that you mentioned are the ones that grabbed me the most as well, particularly Bathsheba. Um, When I read that section in the book um, that said not only was David acting as a voyeur. But I, I had no idea that Bathsheba's bathing was ritual bathing. So on one hand, she's just she's just following the rules, right? She's just going about her life the way her culture tells her is the good and holy way. And then she kind of gets sucked into this whole mm-hmm. situation where she's labeled as the villain. And mm-hmm. I, I kept thinking, like... This is this is rape culture. This is mm-hmm. this is biblical mm-hmm. rape culture, just like the rape culture we still live in. And like, why have I never heard this story from this place before?
0: I agree, um, and I hope that I pointed that out in the book that it is rape culture. And when the prophet talks to David about what he has done and uses that parable of the man and his lamb, they must have. Bathsheba must have had the most loving relationship with the husband that David eventually has killed she must have been heartbroken
1: sure i mean and and not just emotionally right i mean her cultural stability takes Mm -hmm. an incredible blow because of these experiences
0: Mm -hmm. yes finding out she was pregnant um in in a culture where her husband well she would have been stoned to death because she was pregnant uh,
1: that's a another interesting point a thread that I see running through the book um, I think purposefully that I would like to mention is um, is embodiment and and the close knit, the close tie of of femininity to the physical body um, one place that that I saw that in a new way is um, there's a in chapter 6, um, on women in Jesus' parables and his public life, uh, you mention three of the Gospels connect the story of the hemorrhaging woman with the story of the dying 12-year-old girl and uh, then make this really interesting rhetorical, metaphorical move. Uh, you say that because of the girl's age, because she's 12, and because the woman has been hemorrhaging for 12 years, there's a kind of bodily connection between um, blood, the, the woman's hemorrhaging, and the girl being near age of first menses. Uh, mm-hmm. They're connected together by that bodily theme. I had never thought about that, even though those two stories do appear side by side in multiple places. And noticing that connection made me notice uh, that embodiment is huge throughout the book, that you have story after story of um, women either being unfairly distanced from their bodily processes or being kind of reduced to just physical bodies. So, uh, so what about embodiment? Why is embodiment so important here in terms of letting these voices speak for themselves?
0: I think that we see those same patterns in the way women's bodies are viewed today and we can go to one extreme and look at religious traditions that cover up the female body as much as possible and to the other extreme of the way our media and culture encourage young women to display their bodies and make their bodies available. And I think that the same kinds of things have, all, have happened since biblical times. Um, the writers are writing about, about women who are in bodies. And judgments are made about women because of their bodies. So I think it was important to me not to be afraid to talk about women's bodies as women's bodies. Um, One person who read the manuscript really early on said it was racy. I didn't see anything racy in it, but I think that the fact that I treat women's bodies as, as women's bodies and not something to fear and not something to hide made the book seem racy to this reader.
1: Probably so, and this is a a battle that feminist theory kind of has been fighting since its inception, right? Um, Right. Early feminist writers like Simone de Beauvoir – Um, say that they're they're not going to deal with bodies they're not going to touch bodies because that's the sort of stereotypical feminine move and and they want to change the conversation and and make it um, more about women's thoughts and experiences and and less about tying them to physicality primarily because physicality is is so connected to the marginalized domestic sphere Um, so I'm I, I really responded positively to you pushing, against, uh, pushing back against some of those ideas because we all live in our bodies, right? Women, men, everyone, like we can't pretend that we don't. So that was right. a, a really refreshing move for me.
0: Thank you. When I was in seminary, I was fascinated by how many people wanted to do their dissertation on embodiment, And these were seminarians from many different religious traditions. And embodiment was a topic that was important for them to research and write about.
1: Some other patterns that I noticed... um, I guess I want to talk about Mary and Martha for a minute. Um, Mary and Martha are, I think some of those biblical characters that get uh, – yeah, I'm not going to be nice about this – that get kind of shoved down women's throats mm-hmm. um, to to promote a variety of religious and, and cultural agendas, some of which are, are pretty well-meaning and, and some of which I think are, are rather less so. Um, what initially really intrigued me about your coverage of Mary and Martha is that most sermons I've heard about them – Um, they get two Bible stories, right? And most sermons I've heard about them focus more on, uh, Jesus's visit to Mary and Martha, where, um, Martha gets rebuked for being too hospitable, um, and, and Mary gets praised for sitting at the feet of Jesus. And in my experience, women tend to get told a lot less about the other appearance of Mary and Martha, um, Lazarus's resurrection. But Mm -hmm. in in your book, both in Mary's telling her story and in Martha's telling hers, they focus um, primarily on the latter rather than the former. Um, What are your reasons for that?
0: Well, I think it's so important that Martha made the same declaration of Jesus being the Son of God that Peter did, and Peter gets the keys to the kingdom, and I was never taught about Martha, so that always bothered me. And it always bothered me that that Martha was rebuked, and I didn't really see a rebuke there. I saw a kindness come sit down you don't have to do all of this work but it's phrased in the text and it was taught to me as something that martha was doing wrong in her hospitality and i love the idea that the service that martha is doing the table service could be equated with serving at serving the eucharist That's a beautiful image for me. And I was never taught that what Mary was doing was sitting in the attitude of a disciple, just like male disciples did. And I think that those important aspects of what we're not taught about what these women were doing is very important to bring to the surface and not have a rebuke. It's like a commercial that used to be on television years ago and there was a beautiful woman and she would say don't hate me because I'm beautiful and I used to look at that commercial and say who even thinks like that so I think that's what what is happening with the story of Mary and Martha they're they're pitted against each other just as Rachel and Leah are pitted against each other and I think that cultures try and drive wedges between women. I've seen it happen many times, and I don't think that women drive wedges between each other unless, unless we are culturally programmed to do so.
1: Absolutely. Um, that's a, another place where I was thinking pretty strongly of my own um, literary experiences, um, this idea that these women are... Um, are portrayed in a way that makes them adversarial mm-hmm. um i kept thinking of uh, a room of one's own and the the passage where um the speaker is shocked that chloe liked olivia and and tries to think of other passages in literature where women um like each other and where they're friends and she says there's not that many instead you get women um who are adversarial and who are adversarial because they tie their individual worth to male relationships. So mm-hmm. w- what do you make of the fact that even um, even sacred texts are participating in this kind of women-as-adversary metric?
0: The Bible totally buys into that. Um, and that may not be the right way to say it, but over and over again I see where um, – There's adversarial relationships between women. One of the exceptions being the the book of Ruth. And she is highly praised for staying with Naomi. But the author of the text, as soon as the baby is born, Ruth is out of the picture. And a kind of adversarial relationship then is implied because the women of the town are talking about Ruth as the mother of the baby and she's the one that names the baby and we never hear Ruth's voice again. So I think there are many instances. I would really be interested in your research if if you had a statistic about how many female writers wrote about adversarial relationships with women as opposed to friendships between women and how many of those literary adversarial relationships are written by men?
1: Uh, I I don't know that I could give you numbers. I, I do know that something that I look for in my own research is... Um, sort of nuanced depictions of female community, because I think they're still few and far between, Um, particularly since you mentioned Ruth and Naomi, um, intergenerational female community um, seems to be kind of the gold standard for me right now. I I think I I just finished a, a dissertation on young adult novels that adapt Shakespeare. Uh, so I've, I've been thinking a lot about relationships between younger women and older women and, and how younger women are taught to kind of model appropriate uh, femininity by the older women in their lives. Uh, if they're taught that um, that this kind of growing and maturing necessitates relying on older women or if they're taught this... Um, rather male literary model of in order to grow up, you must exhibit complete independence and autonomy. Um, And a lot of the YA novels I was dealing with um, defaulted to this kind of in order to grow up, I must completely distance myself from my parent. Often it was an adversarial mother-daughter relationship. So I I don't know um, that my research says anything other than you know that the pattern that you are talking about does still exist and it does still exist in literature marketed to um, younger growing women in a way that is is disconcerting and, and troubling to me
0: I'd love to hear more about that Maybe maybe this isn't the right venue for it, but sometime I'd like to hear more about that.
1: Sure, we can. Uh, I, I'm sure I, I can tell you more about my dissertation than anyone ever wanted <laughs> to know. I'm I'm in that. Uh, I'm a couple weeks post defense and and finishing up, um, finishing up final revisions now. So it it is all still swirling around in my brain. But absolutely, if if you would like to talk about that um, at, at a later date, I'd love to.
0: And congratulations. I know what an accomplishment that is.
1: Thank you very much. So we, we talked a bit about um, Mary and Martha, and you mentioned um, that Mary and Martha, though they're pitted against each other, are are actually kind of performing the same kind of work. Um, I, I'm not sure I can find the correct page right now, but you mentioned a, a Hebrew word, the word from which we get deacon, um, can, can you talk about that word, how it uh, how it applies to both Mary and Martha and maybe why it's not used in context of their work a lot?
0: Well, not only is uh, diacona not used to describe what Martha is doing or what Mary is doing, but the word that is translated as minister when It refers to what angels do is translated as serve when it refers to what Peter's mother-in-law does. So, if... If, if serving is what the angels are doing, doing and serving is what Peter's mother-in-law is doing, that's great. But if ministering is what the angels are doing and ministering is what Peter's mother-in-law is doing, then that needs to be pointed out. And in most translations, until very recently, um, that's that's the way it's been translated. Hiding, masking the importance of what Peter's mother-in-law was doing. And the same with Martha and Mary. The word hasn't been translated deacon for Martha in the way it's been translated for the actions of men. And it's a way of hiding, in my view, it's a way of hiding the importance of what Martha was actually doing. Probably by a, a, a later a later author that wanted to hide the importance of women in the church. And if I could find a reference to substantiate that on the spot, I would, but I can't.
1: Um, What interests me about the different verbs is how, um, how easily gendered the verb separation is. If, um, if Martha is serving um, rather than ministering, or if if Peter's mother in law is is serving rather than ministering, then um, then what justification that gives for women still being kept in a separate sphere in the domestic sphere, right? If that's how women serve, um, and the Bible says so, then you know, mm-hmm. s- stay stay in this one place and be happy about it.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I don't know that I could expand on that because okay. that's what I think happens.
1: Okay, um, women's work is is something that pops up in other places in the book as well. Uh, another place that made me read, I, I think, has has fundamentally changed um, the the way I'm going to look at a really familiar Bible story, is in your um, your discussion of the feeding of the five thousand, uh, which I was just really blown away by I called my husband into the bedroom and, and had to read aloud to him and I said like can you believe this this is so uh, so different and interesting than anything I've ever heard before uh, you write that the feeding of the 5,000 is a story of, quote, the preparedness of women, women who were part of the crowd but were not counted, women who ministered, there's that word again, women who were the female disciples not counted as disciples. So how is this event really about the preparedness of women, and how come the male disciples don't see it that way?
0: Well, they were never prepared. Um and they being and the male disciples, the, 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 yes, sorry, the male disciples are are it seem to never be prepared. When they're going to um uh going through Samaria, and they have to leave Jesus at the well to go get something to eat, women who knew they were going on a trip would have taken food. The male disciples did not, and. I taught kindergarten for 30 years, and I saw this over and over and over again. Going on the field trip, daddies would come, mamas would come, daddies would go, oh, we're going to have lunch, I better run to McDonald's. Mamas would go, oh no, sit down, I've got plenty, and everybody ate. One of the stories of the feeding of multitudes is the loaves and the fishes, or loaves and fish, and a little boy had them. Well, who do you think gave the little boy the loaves and fish? Probably his mom packed his lunch that morning before he left. She may even been in the crowd. So I think it's, it's the way I see women. Women are prepared. Women know when you take your your young ones out, you need to have a snack. And I don't think women then were any different in that respect than women are today. We provide for our children. We make sure that we take what we know they are going to need. And I think that that's what happened with the feeding of the 5,000. Does it make it any less of a miracle? I don't think that it does. I think that the preparedness of the women is as much a miracle and their generosity as, you know, breaking off the head of a fish and having a new one grow on.
1: Uh, you, in that same section, uh, and you've already alluded to this a bit, uh, talk about what that means for women in the 21st century. And I was really struck thinking of, um, you know, the goldfish crackers and cheese sticks and juice boxes on the playground that you mentioned, um, The how will we as a society kind of view ourselves differently uh, especially as women because there's so much pressure to you know to be prepared for all those situations and to be the mom that has all the best snacks for your kids and what if we kind of saw the miracle in that saw mm-hmm. saw christ in in the goldfish and the juice boxes like how do you think um, looking at that event differently would change how we see the work we do as women
0: that's a really good question what women do I use an example in the book of my nephew who one day said to me why is it that all of the best chefs are men, but women cook every day. And this was many years ago. And, and I said, because our culture values what men do outside the home. Our culture doesn't value what women do inside the home. And being prepared for your family's needs is one of the things that women do. And it's not valued like what men do outside the home.
1: And often, I mean, even not just not valued, but all of this kind of mommy wars nonsense, right? About like if you – If you don't breastfeed, you're terrible. If you do breastfeed, you're terrible. If you don't give your kids organic food, you're awful. But if you just give them organic food and they never have a chicken nugget, then also you're awful. Like, I I feel like not just not valuing the work of women, but women's domestic work, in addition to being devalued, gets kind of picked apart and put under a microscope. Um, Have you seen us as a culture do that, too? And do you think that, um, that men's work, men's public sphere work gets picked apart the same way or not?
0: It's Mary and Martha all over again, pitting women against each other. Um, I can't really speak to how men's work gets picked apart or not because I haven't I haven't, I haven't noticed. I notice things about women, I guess, more than I notice things about, women, about men, and I, I want to say no, that it isn't picked apart, but I'm not sure that I know the answer to that.
1: Okay, uh, just a couple more questions.
0: One of the things that you said before we started this was you um, thought about asking um, how I became a Christian feminist. May I address that?
1: Yes, please.
0: Okay. It was at a church camp, an inner city church camp in the 70s. Most church camps take kids out of the city into the country. This one took kids into the inner city. And it was 1970, so it was a pretty volatile time. And one of the activities of the church camp was to go to the Los Angeles Women's Health Center. And we picked up a woman and brought her back to the church where we were having our camp. And my, my picture of her in my mind is that she was flowing her hair was flowing, her shawl was flowing, the fringe on the shawl was flowing, her skirt was flowing, and she sat down and explained, I'll use that for lack of a better word, feminism. And it made so much sense to me. It was an aha moment. And when, the conversa- when, when her part of the conversation was finished, the male counselors and the boys went into another room and the female counselors this gracious woman and the girls stayed in the room with her i don't remember the particulars of the conversation but i know i knew i was changed and when the time came for the men and boys to come back the girls and women thought that the time Alone together had been too short, and the boys and men reported that they could hardly wait to get back to the room and in that context of it being the very early seventies and being at a church camp and we did other things like um, like uh, get up at four in the morning to march with the farm workers at packing sheds and uh, go to solidarity meetings with black organizations I knew that I knew that Christian feminism was the path that my life had to take.
1: What a lovely story that's that's really wonderful and and how wonderful that you got to um to grow up in a religious environment where social justice was um, e- even before this kind of feminist awakening that you're mentioning, social justice was already part of uh, the Christianity that you were being taught as a child. That's
0: wonderful. I grew up going to the Disciples of Christ Church, and people used to tell me it was the thinking man's church. And even as the little kid, that that rankled because I knew I was thinking and I knew I wasn't a man and I didn't know why. It was the thinking man's church. And that exposure to to feminism and my joining my Christianity and my feminism together changed my language so that it was never a thinking man's church again. It was a thinking woman's church.
1: Yay. Oh, I wish I could just... <laughs> Sorry listeners yay that's wonderful <laughs> uh and and so different from my own um my own experiences in the church, I think that a lot of um a lot of women who um go on this journey of of trying to connect their spirituality or their religion to their politics um do so through this series of as you're saying really stand out personal events that eventually um, point them to the unity of the two. And for me, I was, uh, I was raised Southern Baptist. Um, so uh, apologies to any listening Southern Baptist, but uh, wouldn't really call itself the, the thinking man's church. Uh, at least the, the tradition I was raised um, wasn't terribly open to questioning and, and that kind of thing. So um though I I did have experiences where uh as you said I th- I thought that feminism was missing they for me were were also connected to a kind of missing intellectualism too so I I always love hearing that people had had different experiences or people grew up in traditions where intellectualism was uh encouraged definitely Uh, so we've we've been talking about how the book prioritizes um, marginalized voices, and one of the ways it does that is by encouraging um, encouraging questioning of traditional biblical perspectives by um, emphasizing the importance of reading the Bible with an eye to period social and political norms, uh, the ways things were done in the times and places portrayed in the Bible. Do you think it's also important to, uh, to turn that lens on ourselves, to not impose our own cultural norms on biblical texts?
0: I do, but I don't know that that's necessarily possible all the time to do, because... It's kind of like we don't even know what we don't know. And, and we're so entrenched in our own attitudes and culture that not reading it from our our own cultural perspective and imposing what we already believe on it, I think is a really hard thing to do.
1: I, I think you're right. I think it is um, quite difficult to see our own... Um, See our own cultural perspective and interpretation the uh, that old story about the fish not knowing he's in water, right mm-hmm. um, but if that's true, then how much slack should we be cutting um biblical translators then I mean, at what point do we say uh they couldn't see outside their time and place, so of course women don't talk and and at what point do we push beyond that, do you think?
0: I think we have to push beyond it right now. I think, and, and, and one of the things that I hope my book encourages is a call for biblical literacy and not just to accept other people's interpretations, to read the text for ourselves. I just read a law in Numbers that I had not seen before. It's Numbers 5 11 through 31. And uh, I was shocked by what i read there it was not something that i had ever heard about um, but i read this and thought this is this is not something you are ever going to see on a monument outside of of a courthouse but it's a law that deals with women and it's supposed to be a commandment and it's if if a husband only has a spirit of jealousy toward his wife. He is to take her to the temple with an offering and make her drink a drink of water and dirt and the words of his accusation. And if her thighs rot and her belly swells, she's guilty of making him jealous. And if her thighs don't rot and her belly doesn't swell, she's not guilty of making him jealous. And I sat and read that and thought... We really need to read our Bibles and figure out what they really say to us in the 21st century. Why do we believe what we believe? We certainly don't believe we should go to church and drink bad water. But, you know, people use text like that to hurt other people. And it's important that we are literate about our Bibles and that we know why we believe what we believe.
1: Definitely. That is, is definitely something that the book um, talks about a lot. And you mentioned why we believe what we believe. And I I think if I'm remembering right, you say at some point that that was an early title of the book itself.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: And that, that passage in numbers, I, I had never heard of that either. And it made me think of of so many other things Uh, the first place my brain went is uh, it sounds like those it sounds like the Salem witch trials like those tests um, that they made women undergo to see if they were witches or not very physically centered tests that of course your body is going to react in strange ways when you introduce possibly poisonous foreign substances into it because that's how bodies work
0: if you drowned you're not guilty You know, because a a body full of Satan would float. But if you drowned, you're not guilty. Well, either way, you're dead because if you don't drown, then they're going to execute you.
1: And that that kind of brings us back to our earlier discussion of embodiment, right? Because Mm -hmm. um, because the drowning if you're dead part. Um, uh drowning if you're guilty part, well, yeah, you're dead, but the body doesn't matter anyway, right? The spirit does in in that situation, there's sort of no value of of physicality there.
0: It's really interesting what happens around women's bodies and how they are valued or not valued that whether it's biblically or or culturally, There's kind of so much baggage, I guess, around around how we value women's bodies. And women are taught not to value their own body. Oh, absolutely. I digress from the, digress from the book, but...
1: Okay. Uh, we are near the end of our time, and I have, I think, one, um, one or two final questions. Um, as we've said over and over, Um, the majority of the book is about centering marginalized voices. Uh, Are there also places in the book where you felt the need to um, marginalize traditionally centered voices or maybe where you omitted um, parts
0: of stories that are told a lot? Absolutely. I was very conscious of not retelling parts of stories that I had heard before, um, especially about Men, and I was very conscious of that. And a lot of times, I found myself falling back into that. And then I'd get up the next morning and read the story and go, "Oh, it's all about him. It can't be about him. It has to be about her." So I was very conscious of that. Uh,
1: I'm I'm glad that I'm glad to hear you say that because I I thought in some places that I I must have been reading. Um, reading something into the text that I wanted to see. Uh, for example, um, in the, the chapter on the women in Jesus' family, um, the, the passages on Mary and Elizabeth, um, passages that I've, I've been drawn to pretty much my whole life because um, it is, to me, one of those very few places where you get to see female friendship in action. Um, Mary and Elizabeth are both pregnant and they go see each other. And the part of that story that I think gets kind of centered on, focused on a lot, is not about Mary and Elizabeth, but instead about... Um, the unborn John and the unborn Jesus, um, recognizing each other in the womb. I've, I've heard pastors call it like they were high-fiving each other in utero and things like this. Uh, so that, that section in particular stood out to me because there is no in utero high five in your retelling. It's just about Mary and Elizabeth. So I, I, really enjoyed that and found that, um, found that really interesting
0: Gee, if that isn't imposing our own cultural characteristics back into the Bible, I don't know what is. Jesus and and John are high fiving.
1: I mean, I I don't I don't think the pastor that I heard say that was being terribly serious, <laughs> but I I think, I I think that he was probably just saying they they recognize the presence of one another and terming it in a way that we could understand.
0: Well, that's one of the reasons I focused on the women.
1: Okay, last question. Um, We've talked a lot about um, the importance of of letting these women speak in their own voices. Uh, Were there any stories, any voices that you uh, either would like to elaborate on more here or that you wanted to include in the book but couldn't?
0: No, I included every woman that I wanted to because because of their relationship with Jesus. And I did not leave out any woman that I could find that in any way had any relationship either with Jesus or the early church. Uh, there, but since then, I have found many women whose stories I want to tell and I've been writing a blog about them using the same format as the book and then I just blogged about this this numbers 5 11 through 31 and I put I put this law into the mouth of a wife who is drugged to the temple by her husband and Because he has this spirit of jealousy and she knows she's done nothing wrong and where is the proof and why is she being humiliated, why am I being humiliated and why is my hair being uncovered and why do I have to drink this and she drinks it and and her belly doesn't swell and her thighs don't rot and she cries to the priest where's my justice? I've been humiliated. Where's my justice? And the priest tells her there's no justice for you because you're under the authority of your husband and he did what the law required. He had a spirit of jealousy and he brought you here. And that's basically what those verses say and when I read that I thought how many women have suffered because this drastically unjust law is in numbers so there's other stories I want to tell i'm going to I want to tell about the daughter whose father is is selling her into slavery because there's a law about what you do if you're planning to sell your daughter into slavery and so I want to write about all of these other verses in the Bible that Really hurt women, and I want to put it into the voice of the women that have been hurt
1: thank you i I think that a lot of our listeners would agree that it is important um, to give voice to the voiceless and and not just our listeners, but I mean that is that itself is a is a biblical principle uh, so it's it's very interesting to think about. Um, allowing these voices to speak thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show today i've really enjoyed our conversation
0: me too victoria thank you so much